Section three of Good Sense. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Good Sense by Paul Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. Translator unknown. Section three. Parts twenty five through thirty eight. Twenty five. A spiritual deity is incapable of volition and action. The theologian exclaims to us that God wants neither hands nor arms to act, that he acts by his will. But pray, who or what is that God who has a will, and what can be the subject of his divine will? Are the stories of witches, ghosts, wizards, hobgoblins, etc., more absurd and difficult to believe than the magical or impossible action of mind upon matter? When we admit such a god, fables and reveries may claim belief. Theologians treat men as children, whose simplicity makes them believe all the stories they hear. 26. What is God? To shake the existence of God, we need only to ask a theologian to speak of him. As soon as he has said a word upon the subject, the least reflection will convince us that his observations are totally incompatible with the essence he ascribes to his God. What then is God? It is an abstract word denoting the hidden power of nature. Or it is a mathematical point that has neither length, breadth, nor thickness. David Hume, speaking of theologians, has ingeniously observed that they have discovered the solution to the famous problem of Archimedes, a point in the heavens whence they move the world. 27. Some Remarkable Contradictions in Theology Religion prostrates men before a being who, without extension, is infinite and fills all with his immensity, a being all-powerful who never executes his will, a being sovereignly good who creates only disquietudes, a being the friend of order and in whose government all is in confusion and disorder. What then can we imagine can be the god of theology? 28. To adore God is to adore a fiction. To avoid all embarrassment we are told that it is not necessary to know what God is, that we must adore him, that we are not permitted to extend our views to his attributes. But before we know that we must adore a god, must we not know certainly that he exists? But how can we assure ourselves that he exists, if we never examine whether the various qualities attributed to him do really exist and agree in him? Indeed, to adore God is to adore only the fictions of one's own imagination, or, rather, it is to adore nothing. 29. Atheism is authorized by the infinity of God. In view of confounding things the more, theologians have not declared what their God is. They tell us only what he is not. By means of negations and abstractions, they think they have composed a real and perfect being. Mind is that which is not body. 
An infinite being is a being who is not finite. A perfect being is a being who is not imperfect. Indeed, is there anyone who can form real ideas of such a mass of absence of ideas? That which excludes all idea, can it be anything but nothing? To pretend that the divine attributes are beyond the reach of human conception is to grant that God is not made for man. To assure us that in God all is infinite is to own that there can be nothing common to him and his creatures. If there be nothing common to God and his creatures, God is annihilated for man, or, at least, rendered useless to him. God, they say, has made man intelligent, but he has not made him omniscient. Hence it is inferred that he has not been able to give him faculties sufficiently enlarged to know his divine essence. In this case it is evident that God has not been able nor willing to be known by his creatures. By what right, then, would God be angry with beings who were naturally incapable of knowing the divine essence? God would be evidently the most unjust and capricious of tyrants, if he should punish an atheist for not having known what, by his nature, it was impossible he should know. 30. Believing not safer than not believing in God. To the generality of men, nothing renders an argument more convincing than fear. It is therefore that theologians assure us we must take the safest part, that nothing is so criminal as incredulity, that God will punish without pity everyone who has the temerity to doubt his existence, that his severity is just since madness or perversity can only make us deny the existence of an enraged monarch who without mercy avenges himself on atheists. If we coolly examine these threatenings, we shall find they always suppose the thing in question. They must first prove the existence of a god before they assure us it is safest to believe and horrible to doubt or deny his existence. They must then prove that it is possible and consistent that a just God cruelly punishes men for having been in a state of madness that prevented their believing the existence of a being whom their perverted reason could not conceive. In a word, they must prove that an infinitely just God can infinitely punish the invincible and natural ignorance of man with respect to the divine nature. Do not theologians reason very strangely? They invent phantoms, they compose them of contradictions, they then assure us it is safest not to doubt the existence of these phantoms they themselves have invented. According to this mode of reasoning, there is no absurdity which it would not be more safe to believe than not to believe. All children are born atheists. They have no idea of God. Are they then criminal on account of their ignorance? At what age must they begin to believe in God? It is, you say, at the age of reason. But at what time should this age commence? Besides, if the profoundest theologians lose themselves in the divine nature, 
which they do not presume to comprehend, what ideas must man have of him? 31. Belief in God is a habit acquired in infancy. Men believe in God only upon the word of those who have no more idea of him than themselves. Our nurses are our first theologians. They talk to children of God as if he were a scarecrow. They teach them from the earliest age to join their hands mechanically. Have nurses, then, more true ideas of God than the children whom they teach to pray? 32. Belief in God is a prejudice of successive generations. Religion, like a family estate, passes with its encumbrances from parents to children. Few men in the world would have a God had not pains been taken in infancy to give them one. Each would receive from his parents and teachers the God whom they received from theirs, but each, agreeably to his disposition, would arrange, modify, and paint him in his own manner. 33. On the Origin of Prejudices The brain of man, especially in infancy, is like soft wax, fit to receive every impression that is made upon it. Education furnishes him with almost all his ideas at a time when he is incapable of judging for himself. We believe we have received from nature, or have brought with us at birth, the true or false ideas which, in a tender age, had been instilled into our minds, and this persuasion is one of the greatest sources of errors. 34. On the Effects of Prejudices Prejudice contributes to cement in us the opinions of those who have been charged with our instruction. We believe them much more experienced than ourselves. We suppose they are fully convinced of the things which they teach us. We have the greatest confidence in them. By the care they have taken of us in infancy, we judge them incapable of wishing to deceive us. These are the motives that make us adopt a thousand errors, without other foundation than the hazardous authority of those by whom we have been brought up. The prohibition, likewise, of reasoning upon what they teach us, by no means lessens our confidence, but often contributes to increase our respect for their opinions. 35. Theology must be instilled before the age of reason. Divines act very wisely in teaching men their religious principles before they are capable of distinguishing truth from falsehood, or their left hand from their right. It would be as difficult to instill into the mind of a man forty years old the extravagant notions that are given to us of the divinity as to eradicate them from the mind of him who had imbibed them from infancy. 36. The wonders of nature do not prove the existence of God. It is observed that the wonders of nature are sufficient to lead us to the existence of a God, and fully to convince us of this important truth. But how many are there in the world who have the time, capacity, or disposition necessary to contemplate nature and meditate her progress? Men, for the most part, pay no regard to it. 
The peasant is not struck with the beauty of the sun, which he sees every day. The sailor is not surprised at the regular motion of the ocean. He will never draw from it theological conclusions. The phenomena of nature prove the existence of a god only to some prejudiced men who have been early taught to behold the finger of God in everything whose mechanism could embarrass them. In the wonders of nature, the unprejudiced philosopher sees nothing but the power of nature, the permanent and various laws, the necessary effects of different combinations of matter infinitely diversified. 37. Nature may be explained by natural causes. Is there anything more surprising than the logic of these divines who, instead of confessing their ignorance of natural causes, seek beyond nature, in imaginary regions, a cause much more unknown than that nature, of which they can form at least some idea? To say that God is the author of the phenomena of nature, is it not to attribute them to an occult cause? What is God? What is a spirit? They are causes of which we have no idea. Oh, wise divines, study nature and her laws, and since you can there discover the action of natural causes, go not to those that are supernatural, which, far from enlightening, will only darken your ideas and make it utterly impossible that you should understand yourselves. 38. Nature may be explained by natural causes. Nature, you say, is totally inexplicable without a god. That is to say, to explain what you understand very little, you have need of a cause which you understand not at all. You think to elucidate what is obscure by doubling the obscurity, to solve difficulties by multiplying them. Oh, enthusiastic philosophers! To prove the existence of a god, write complete treatises of botany. Enter into a minute detail of the parts of the human body. Launch forth into the sky to contemplate the revolution of the stars, then return to the earth to admire the course of waters. Behold with transport the butterflies, the insects, the polypi, and the organized atoms, in which you think you discern the greatness of your god. All these things will not prove the existence of God. They will prove only that you have not just ideas of the immense variety of matter, and of the effects producible by its infinitely diversified combinations that constitute the universe. They will prove only your ignorance of nature, that you have no idea of her powers when you judge her incapable of producing a multitude of forms and beings of which your eyes, even with the assistance of microscopes, never discern but the smallest part. In a word, they will prove that for want of knowing sensible agents, or those possible to know, you find it shorter to have recourse to a word expressing an inconceivable agent. End of section 3. Recording by Roger Moline.